decade or more now, done these amazing, dramatic presentations. We take a theme and then present it through song and through drama. It is amazing. It takes hundreds, yes, thousands, when you took all the people's hours to put that on. When the day draws closer, they begin to rearrange the chairs, they set up the stage, they begin to practice hour after hour, they have the dress rehearsal, and I mean, it is intense. All the behind the scenes people everywhere, the nursery workers, custodial, you put it all together, all the technical team, I mean, everybody is geared to make it work. The stage is set. And then comes the presentation. Now, friend, the same thing is now true in the world that we live in. I'm telling you the greatest dramatic presentation that has ever taken place is about ready to burst onto the scene. The future? No, well, the future is now. The Lord is on His throne, and the Bible is going to show us in Chapter 4 is where we're beginning here today on the book of Revelation, how that God is about ready to burst onto the scene in an amazing way. In chapter tw tw uh, 4, excuse me, of the book of Revelation, 12 different times he uses the word throne. In fact, 46 times throughout the book of Revelation, it is clear that God's throne is the universe and beyond. Not any throne of man controls this world, and certainly not the game of thrones that some of you might watch. But 20 years ago here at our church, we had a colorful young man who came from kind of a rough background, but he was a delight. And when something really blessed him or when God did a work, he would holler out, God rules! <laughs> some of you that were here, you may remember that man, God rules! <laughs> When we were digging the foundations for this building, we had these big old squares called piers, and uh, they were like three by three or four by four down into this dirt, which actually is basically concrete around here in the summertime, and uh, we didn't have the needed funds to have a big digger, so we did it by hand. And he volunteered, and I, he was out there digging with that big old... Uh, axe there and that big old digging bar, and I mean sweating. And I walked up and I said, God rules. He looked at me and just grunted. And uh, the truth is, God does rule. He rules over the concrete, and He rules over the dirt, and He rules over this universe. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We have committed each uh, January, at least, uh, uh, at least January, maybe more, and uh, to go through the book of Revelation. We try to basically take one chapter at a time, or maybe half at a time. And so last year we went through the first three chapters, chapters two and three kind of speedily, but this year we pick up with chapter four. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Let's ask God's blessing on the message. Father, we ask your blessings on this message. God, it is all about you. Thank you for the victories, Lord. 2019 is starting off, Lord, with a bang. You are a victorious God. You are on the throne. Thank you. Now, Lord, we pray that this year will be the greatest year in the history of this ministry. It'll be the year of your return. Lord, help us to be busy until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. 
There are five spectacular truths we see in Revelation chapter 4 about the throne of God. First of all, we see a summons from the throne. Let's read verse 1 together. And by the way, uh, our sound team appreciate all they do and the technical team. And uh, we have some artist depictions of maybe what some of this looked like. And feel free to put those up whenever you want. Verse number 1, let's read it together, all right? Out loud. Ready, begin. After this I looked... And behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now praise the Lord, God didn't just leave us in the dark with this book of symbols. Now it's true there are certain symbols and signs in the book of Revelation that Nobody can be just absolutely sure about, but uh, at least, uh, or oftentimes, and it's certainly true about the outline of the book, God gave us the definition. So if you want to go back a couple of chapters to chapter 1, verse 19, we'll put it up here on the PowerPoint for you, but here's the outline of the book of Revelation, write the things which thou hast seen, past tense, and the things which are about the churches and the things which shall be hereafter. First of all, God said, I want you to write the things which you have seen. John exiled to a isle of a Greek isle called Patmos. There he was given a vision by the Holy Spirit of a glorified, not a baby in a manger, but a glorified, risen and reigning Christ. And the, uh, the chapters 1, we see Christ talking uh, and seeing about Christ. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we find the church. 19 different times, that's what Paul or John said, the things that are. 19 different times we see and read the word church. That's the age we're living in. We don't especially teach uh, church age and patriarchal age as though it's some little a curtain that drops in the ages, but it would appear that there are eras of time, and it would certainly appear that we are in an age known as the church age by theologians. These are the things which are. And then there is a third part in this division. Look at verse 19, the things which shall be. Now, chapter 1 talks about clearly Christ reigning. Chapters 2 and 3 clearly are about the church. Now, there's a division beginning with chapter 4 and verse number 1. What is it? It is about the things which are. And that's why it starts off in chapter 4, verse 1. Come up hither. (laughs) Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. Notice those uh, first two words, after this. After this. Actually, that's the King James rendering. If you were to read it in the Greek, it would say something like this, after these things. A good little thing to kind of circle that little phrase, uh, after this, and then put after these things. Meaning what? After the things we just read about in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the church age. At the end of the church age, John's attention is drawn heavenward. And there is an event, and notice what it says in verse 1. Come up hither. Come up. In theology, this is known as the rapture. 
Now, the word rapture is not found in the King James Bible. Well, certainly the principle is. It is a Latin word, actually, but it just simply means a catching away. Now, there is at least six reasons why we believe that this coming up in verse 1 of chapter 4 is the same as the rapture. I'll give them to you very quickly. You can write them down or you can listen to the podcast later. Number one, heaven is opened to receive God's children. Sounds an awful lot like the rapture. Number two, there's a voice like a trumpet. We're told that there's a voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet in the rapture. Number three, it's a sudden event, as is the rapture. Number four, it comes at the end of the church age, as does the rapture. And number five, it introduces John to the throne room of heaven, as does the rapture. And number six, it signals the beginning of God's judgment on the world. So what are we talking about? It is my sincere belief. It is... uh, My thinking here as we go through this, that this is in fact the rapture of the church, the catching away where everybody who has ever been saved through the ages from Adam on will be part of that great bride of Christ. It is eternity. And let me just pause right here and say, folks, eternity is right ahead of us. Many of us mistakenly think that, oh, the rapture and eternity and all these things in the book of Revelation They're a long way from now, but I remind you this morning that they might be experienced by each one of us in our lifetime. No, they might be experienced this year. In fact, they might be experienced before this sermon even ends. You better listen. You better be uh, all into this here today because at any moment, Jesus may come. In fact, Jesus said these words in Matthew 24, verse 44, in such an hour as you think not. And so if you're thinking that that's ah, probably not going to happen right now, that's exactly when the Bible says it very well could come. You say, Pastor, why do you feel like we are living in the last days? Well, first of all, theologically, I know we're in the last days because John said we were. <laughs> Beloved, these are the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. And so we're closer to the return than we've ever been. But honestly, in my very brief lifetime, and I say brief because I'm a still very tender age, but, uh, you know, I believe that this world has changed so dramatically. Think about what has happened in just my lifetime and some of your lifetimes even more. In my lifetime, the European Union formed. There was no such thing as a union of European nations which are so amazingly the same as the ancient Roman Empire, which God says will be revived in the last days. There has been an increase of knowledge that has been unbelievable. The development of space exploration, mankind has walked on the moon, they've taken journeys to Mars. In fact, they're even talking about colonizing Mars right now, and Jupiter and Venus and beyond. The Bible says in the last days that perilous times will come and that men will wax worse and worse. The depths of sin of our society, American society for sure, has gone to evil unprecedented. Divorce during my lifetime, from the time I was born to now, when I was born, the divorce rate was only one in eight marriages. Today, it is one in two. In my brief lifetime, violent crime has risen 500%. When I was a teenager, no, I never even heard the word homosexual. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I never, never even crossed my mind. 
Today, they openly parade their sin, walking up and down the, uh, you can't even go to Disneyland without being assaulted every moment. During my lifetime, Israel has become a full-blown nation, though it was an infant when I was born. It was born as a nation in 1948. But all the eyes of the world are focused on the only democratic nation in the entire Middle East, in the middle of a billion or more Arab nation, people in all those uh, nations. It, it, why in this little sliver of land? The fact is, it is a, a powder keg, and the Bible says that's going to be the center of the world. In my lifetime, knowledge has exploded. I can still remember the first time I saw color TV. And I mean, when I saw color TV, I sat there affixed. How in the world is that possible? We couldn't get one, of course. I mean, that was for the rich people. But uh, I mean, a color TV, and now you can, at the, at a, with one button, you can watch anything you want, anything going on in the world in a nanosecond. We can get billions of bits of information. It is certainly, as the Bible says, an increase of knowledge. A cashless society is here. Nobody would have ever even imagined that we could actually do business without cash. Not only is it a cashless society, but in many cases with cryptocurrency and other things, even the concept of currency has totally transformed. In certain nations like Sweden, it is soon, they are soon going to quit printing money. They are going to a cashless society. At almost 10,000 Swedes now have a chip inserted into their hand so that they can uh, be, and it makes sense for them because of security and convenience. But the fact is, folks, we are, our society is absolutely changing. And I was, uh, a few months ago, we watched a series by Dr. Robert Jeffress, author, pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And he mentioned something that I'd never actually thought of in this light before. And his uh, uh, thought about the countdown to the apocalypse, and he bases it on Matthew chapter 24, when the Bible says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And that little part, rumors, is basically terrorism. The threat of terrorism is going to be a sign of the end days. And his point in his series was the number one reason why we are in the last days is the rise of radical Islam. The threat of terrorism, now people are in a place where we feel like if you get on a bus or if you get on a train, everybody thinks twice. You go into a public place, especially if you're in Europe or other places, you wonder what's going to happen. Now, many people deny any relationship between terror and Islam, but all you have to do is listen to their leaders. Because when someone in that Islamic community commits an act of terror, they are only doing what their book of faith, the Quran, tells them to do. You'd say, Pastor, that's really intolerant of you to say such a thing. And I will say this, it is not intolerant, it is not hateful to tell a Muslim that if they continue with that thinking, they are going to go to hell. Because I say the same thing to Baptists. The fact is, if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you cannot go to heaven. That's not hateful. That is a hope of message, brothers and sisters. 
and the rise of radical Islam, it is a terrible thing, and it is certainly a great sign of the last days. Who would have ever thought of all the fear that that is conjuring, not only radical Islam, but all kinds of other terrorists? The fact is, folks, it is all pointing to the fact that something is about ready to happen, and every time, and I will tell you this, every time I read another thing about the depth of sin, and just when I think I've heard about everything, something more vile, something more wicked happens, and what we see in the political world right now going on, even in America, every time I get more disgusted and I get more just uh, discouraged from a physical standpoint, the fact is something happens in my soul, and that is this, judgment day is coming. I always have the same feeling. I'll tell you one thing, they're going to get it. It's going to happen. And that's exactly what the, book, the time of tribulation is. It is a day of judgment, God's righteous and loving justice. And certainly we see it. You'd say, well, what does that mean for me? Well, one thing I can tell you, thank God, we won't be here. If you're a born-again believer, you're not going to be here. You'd say, well, what do you base that on? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And if you want a good book on that, you can get Dwight Pentecost's uh, book, The Things to Come, amazing book on eschatology. But here's one verse for you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the tribulation period historically is the greatest period of God's wrath. I want you to look at Luke chapter 17 verses 29 and 30. Here's another reason why we feel like we won't be here. The Bible says that God gives an example, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be when the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Just like Lot was taken out so he didn't have to suffer the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And folks, some of the stuff going on today is Sodom and Gomorrah. And before God, the Bible says when God's going to bring down that, uh, that, uh, that great fire upon this earth, we're going to be gone. The Bible says that God took Noah and put him in an ark, take, took him out of this world, and then he brought judgment. Surely the Old Testament teaches us that God is going to take us out of this world. There's a summons coming. Have you ever gotten a summons? I've never gotten a, a summons in that way, but a legal way, but I've certainly got several summons because of the building. And I got summoned to the uh, to the principal's office before, and uh, that was terrible. But I'll tell you one thing, we're going to get a summons, and we're going to be out of this place, and this old world is then going to be judged. And that's what verse 1 is all about, that the next thing is God's summoning from the throne. Verse, the second uh, wonderful and amazing thing that's going to happen, notice the splendor of the throne. First the summons, now the splendor. Verse 2, and immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Immediately, the Bible says, when the rapture comes, there's not a moment to say, oh God, have mercy on me, because the Bible says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I mentioned last week that I took a spill, and uh, I mean, as much as I wanted to stop that from happening, I just couldn't do it. And that took probably two seconds from the time I tripped to the time I did a head uh, into the wall. You know what? In two seconds, it could have been so much different. It was bad enough the way it was. Folks, we, can, we don't have a, 
a second to convert. The Bible says immediately. There's not a moment to say, oh God, I'm sorry for what I've done. Oh God, forgive me for these people I've hurt. Oh God, I, I want to get baptized. I want to start serving you. God, I want to give. It's going to be done. My friend, if you're going to get busy for God, do it now because the Bible says immediately. Notice what it says. I was in the Spirit and I was in heaven. Whether John was in heaven in his body or whether he was given a dream, we are not told here. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talked about an experience that he had. He even said, I don't even really know if I was in my body or I was in a vision. But the fact is, he sees a throne. Look at verse 3. And he sat, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow route about the throne, a sight like unto an emerald. And so John sees this amazing throne scene, this uh, great throne with uh, surrounded in a hue of green emerald, and uh, there are diamonds and sardine stones there, but it's a throne. And notice what it says, there is one that sat on the throne. It wasn't Mr. Trump, as much as we appreciate what he's doing back there. It wasn't, it wasn't Nancy Pelosi on the throne. It wasn't any person on this throne. It is Jesus Christ, the one. And he is not a myth. He is not an idea. He is the one. Notice what it says, Jasper. First thing he sees and isn't it intriguing how God uses the beautiful things of this world that are still beautiful 2,000 years later since the Holy Spirit gave this? Diamond, that's actually what a jasper is. The highest of all gems, God's unequaled purity. Then the sardine stone. So he sees this, this uh, throne, as it were, made out of diamond and uh, sardine, red like a ruby. Red, speaking of God's loving judgment, His indescribable love. God who took our judgment, God who in anguish and upon the cross, He gave us eternal life. It is certainly, apparently, a, uh, a, a look back at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the high priest, who is a symbol certainly of Christ, the high priest would carry upon his breast a ephod, kind of a, a golden metal piece that would be strapped over his shoulder, and they would, there were 12 stones in it, and each one, and he had, in addition to the other stones, he had the jasper and the, the red stone here, the sardine. Jesus is our high priest, and the, just like the high priest would always have it on his chest, above his heart, we are always thought of by our loving Savior, whose beautiful love, as beautiful as gems, one of our dear sisters, um, has, is a gymnologist here in the church, and she actually did a little paper. She's a wonderful Christian. She did a paper about the relationship between gems and the Christ in the Bible. You know, the throne is a beautiful thing with all these gems and is surrounded by this green emerald, a rainbow. Notice, it is a rainbow. What is the rainbow? The rainbow is a sign of the promise. A promise of God's mercy. Even though this world is sinful, God has mercy to it. And that's what the rainbow is. By the way, the rainbow is not a sign of gay pride. And I am, I am incensed 
at the blasphemy of those leaders who take that wonderful picture of God's mercy and use it for their sinful ideas. The fact is, the, the rainbow is a beautiful thing. The Bible reminds us by the prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, he said, in his wrath, God always remembers mercy. And so here we see a throne. God's wrath is about to be poured out on this earth, and yet it's a beautiful God. It's a just God. It's not a, it's not a God who is political or who, who leans to the left or who leans to the right. This is God who has truth, His throne who always does that which is just, and he, it's made out of pure diamonds and pure rubies, the blood which He shed. He said, I died for this world. Don't tell me I don't love this world. I love every person. Don't tell me that I can't come out in justice. Oh, splendor of the throne. Some people get a privilege of visiting all over the world and will tell us of the splendors of some geography. And there are some beautiful places in this world. Pretty much no place as beautiful as we live here with our mountains and our oceans. But the fact is, folks, nothing is as glorious as the moment we see that heavenly throne. And that's what it's talking about here, a summons and then the splendor. God's trying to give us the the setting here. The stage is being set. Now, notice the seniors around the throne. The seniors. You say, who are you talking about? Well, the elders, as we'll see. Verse 4 And around about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had upon their heads crowns of golds. You say, what were these, pastor? Were these angels? No, we don't believe that they are angels. There's at least four reasons why I don't believe that they're angels. Number one, you never see angels on thrones in Scripture. Number two, you never see angels with crowns. Because whatever they did, it's been done, and they can't earn a crown. And number three, it says in their song that is being sung that they have been redeemed. And certainly that's not something that an angel could say. An angel can't ever say, I've been redeemed. They've been given heaven, but it was not because they accepted Christ as their Savior. And number four, I don't believe these are angels because the word elder suggests maturity. Mature in the Lord, and angels are timeless. And so you'd say, well, then if they're not angels, what are these angelic creatures? Well, actually, they are representative of every born-again believer of all the ages. You'd say, 24? You mean all that's in heaven is 24 people? If you were to go to one of these kingdom halls, they would tell you, well, there's only 144,000 that are going to be in heaven. Here in this verse, someone might mistakenly say, you mean there's only 24 people in heaven? No, it's representative. 12 is the government number in Scripture. You see it often. There were 12 tribes. There were 12 apostles. And it's interesting that both of those were in the old and the new. God says, really, all of those in the old, all of those in the new, who received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who became a uh, part of this elders, they, in fact, will be in heaven. And it makes sense because we're told in 1 Peter that every person who gets saved is a part of a royal priesthood. We are a priest and, uh, and kings unto God, Revelation chapter 1 says. Folks, we have been redeemed and been given and imputed the holy righteousness of Christ. You'd say, well, why are there crowns on their heads? Look what it says in first, excuse me, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. 
the righteous judge, which will give me at that day a crown, not only to me, but to all them who love his appearing. A crown. These elders who represent all believers, Old and New Testament, have crowns. Crowns given for faithful service, for loving the appearing of Christ. Do you love the appearing of Christ? Do you look forward to the coming of our Lord? Now, I know you're looking forward to your vacation. I know you're looking forward to the uh, fact that you can retire someday. I know you're looking forward to getting married or having a child, and we all look forward to things. But my friend, we should look forward, number one, to the coming of our Lord and Savior. Every day we ought to wake up and look up to heaven and say, perhaps today, today I'm going to see the Lord. Today, Lord, come. That's why the Bible says, if we think that way, it'll help us live pure. Because I don't want the Lord to catch me smoking, amen? And someone said, well, why I not? Because, well, God doesn't allow smoke in heaven. And if, I, if he came, right, well, I took a big old drag of smoke, I, I wouldn't have any place to exhale because you'd be in heaven. That'd be a terrible thing. You'd have to go to hell to exhale, amen? And uh, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. But the fact is, folks, I want to live pure for the Lord because he's coming. He's coming. Do you love his appearing? The Bible said, why would I want to go to heaven? Like what one person said, it's a good outline. Heaven, why? Because there's worship without distraction, serving without exhaustion, fellowship without fear, learning without fatigue, and rest without boredom. That's a pretty good reason why I should go to heaven. The summons from the throne, the splendor from the throne, the seniors around the throne, and now the sentence out of the throne. Look at verse 5, part A. And out of the throne proceeded thunders and lightnings and voices. <laughs> a storm is coming. God thundered a warning at Sinai. The Bible says when God came down to this earth and gave the commandments to his people, Exodus chapter 19, that Sinai shook flashes of lightning and rumbling of thunder and a, all building up to a heavenly crescendo. The fact is, folks, there's a heavenly, righteous cyclone that's about ready to happen. As I said, every time I see something more and more sinful, I just think, boy, I'll tell you what, payday is coming. I'm telling you what, God's about, God's about ready to storm up. I mean, it is, He is storming up, and He's about ready to unloose all of that. Have you realized that God's justice, symbolized by the quaking of this world, is coming? In fact, that's what it says in Matthew chapter 24, that there'll be earthquakes and there'll be all kinds of signs. You'd say, well, is that, uh, is that happening more and more? Did you realize that earthquakes have tripled just in the last decade? From 2009 to 2019, the rate of earthquakes has tripled. Do you realize that from last century to this century, there have been 265% more earthquakes. The Bible reminds us there's going to be all kinds of things all over the world. We just went to the Philippines and had a, just missed a typhoon there. We, I read that in Philippines sees 20 typhoons a year. That's just what happens. And it's, you'd say, well, it's because of global warming, folks. People blame global warming on cars. They blame it on this. I'm going to tell you about global warming. 
No, they haven't seen anything yet because this old globe is going to change. It is going to spin off. I mean, the Bible says there's going to be such a cataclysmic change to this world. Folks says it's going to change. People say, well, I, I just don't have that opinion. <laughs> Some scoff at this. You know, in a few weeks here, spring training is going to begin, and the Giants are going to try to beat the Dodgers again, and it's going to be an exciting moment around here. For all those baseball fans, I read a baseball story that kind of reminds me of this idea of people thinking, you know, well, I'll just have my own opinion about global warming and about the future, what God is talking about. Back in the days of Babe Ruth, there was an umpire, well-known umpire by the name of Pinelli. He once called out Babe Ruth on strikes. The crowd booed with absolute disapproval as the legendary Ruth uh, turned to the umpire and he whined, there's 40,000 people here who know that that last pitch was a ball, you tomato head. And the umpire looked at him, suspecting that the umpire would erupt with anger. All the coaches, all the players were bracing for a brawl. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And Pinelli, the calm umpire, looked at Babe Ruth and said, well, maybe so, babe, <laughs> but my opinion is the only one that counts. <laughs> Amen. My opinion is the only one that counts. <laughs> and so people say, well, I have my opinion about global warming and about what's going to happen in the future. You know what? It really doesn't make any difference what my opinion is. There's only one opinion that counts, and that's God's. And God says, this old world is going to change we're trying to preserve it. And God says, man, I'm not going to preserve it. I'm going to remake it. Now, I don't believe we ought to abuse this world, but the fact is, folks, there is a sentence that is going to be carried out in this earth. There's a summons. There's the splendor. There's the seniors around the throne. There's a sentence out of the throne. And finally, there's a scene at the throne. Three different items or beings are there. Verse 5, part B, and there was seven lamps, excuse me, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. You'd say seven spirits of God? What? <laughs> Again, this is symbolic language. Seven is the perfect number. It's just meaning that the perfect God, God, the Holy Spirit is there as a light. Notice there's a lampstand. A lampstand. We're told that it has seven and there's a lampstand. Now remember, we are told in Scripture that the Old Testament tabernacle, followed by the Old Testament temple, was patterned after a heavenly tabernacle. You remember that in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant where the blood sacrifice was offered. They would take the blood or, and offer it or take the blood and pour it out there. But before the Ark of the Covenant, there was a candlestick which put light on the Ark of the Covenant. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit. The Bible reminds us that the Holy Spirit's job is to lift up Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant, that's the symbol. All of that is symbolic language, and it is simply reminding us of this great sacrifice. And then notice in verse 6, it says that there is a sea of glass like unto a crystal. You'd say a sea? There's a, 
You know, see, no, it's not talking about an ocean. It's talking about water. You remember that one of the things that was in the temple and one of the things that was in the tabernacle was a laser, or excuse me, a laver, <laughs> a laver, and it was a huge basin filled with water. We get our word lavatory from the word laver, actually, because it's the same word. It's a word for to wash something. And so the Bible says that this sea or this laver was there, and it was the place where the priest would symbolically wash themselves, reminding us that we must be washed in order to go to heaven. But the Bible reminds us here that this is a crystallized sea. It's crystallized water. What is he speaking about? I really believe he's talking about the promises of the Word of God. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, it says, we are washed by the Word of God. The Word of God is the washing of God, but it's been crystallized, something to stand on. <laughs> stand on the promises. I know we want to take pills to cure this, and we want to take pills to cure that, folks. The gospel is something we see from the Word of God. That's what we ought to stand on. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And so we're standing on the promises today, the same promises that will be there in heaven. Now, what else is at this throne? What else is in this great throne room? There are four beasts. Look at verse 6. Round about the throne, four beasts. Now, we're not talking about the beast, the Antichrist. It's a different Greek word. Verse 7, and the first beast or creature was like a lion. The old English wording is a little bit strange here, but the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast like a face of a man, the fourth beast like of a flying eagle. And the four beasts, each of them had six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, sing holy, 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 three. There's that trinity again, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now, we're not told exactly who these creatures are, but in symbolism, four is the number for the world. It is the number of world. There's four points on a compass. It would probably referring to the fact that all uh, of the uh, all of that God has ever made is in covenant with God, man, animals, birds, and land. The four uh, things that God made a covenant with. But I personally feel like that it's referring to the cherubim. I see the same thing in the book of Ezekiel. Each represented really Jesus Christ, and fascinatingly represented each by. Four gospels. Four gospels. It is the number of earth. It is the number of God's covenant with this earth. Matthew, the lion gospel. He is the king of the tribe of Judah. Mark, the ox gospel. A humble servant. He is a worker. That's why almost every verse in the book of Mark begins with the word and. It says, and Jesus did this. He was a humble servant. Luke, the man gospel, showing that he is a perfect man. The second Adam that was able to redeem us. And then fourth, John, the eagle gospel, showing that Jesus is God from heaven. All of this is just reminding us, folks, that God is not finished with this earth, and He has made a covenant with this earth to protect it and to restore it and to renew it. I like verse 8 because it reminds us that His name is Lord God Almighty. It's an interesting phrase because that's exactly the phrase, history tells us that the emperor Domitian, the same Caesar who was responsible that sent John to Patmos, 
God just kind of put a little exclamation point that Domitius, you're not the Lord God Almighty. That was the title they called him. But our Lord and Savior is Lord God Almighty. And then what are we going to do when we get to heaven? What's going to happen up there? Look at verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down. Who's the four and twenty elders? That's us. Old Testament, 12 tribes. New Testament, 12 apostles, representing all the believers, old and new. The four and twenty elders all fall down before him that sat on the throne. Who is him? It's not a myth, it's not an essence, it's not a concept, it's not a, just some uh, idea. No, it is Him who sat on the throne. And worship Him that liveth forever. A few moments ago, we sang about a living Savior, not a dead uh, prophet, but a living Savior. And He lives forever and ever. And the Bible says, verse 10, they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, God, only you are worthy. Verse 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Can you imagine this moment? Can you imagine this moment? Here it is, heaven's throne room. God is in control, brothers and sisters. He is on his throne. We look at the junk going on. We look at the stuff going on. We look at what's happening around us and we say, is, is, this world is spinning out of control. It may be spinning, but I remind you that God is overseeing all of it. He is on his throne. He has always been on his throne. He's on the throne today, and he is going to be on the throne in the future. The Bible says he sets up one. He puts down another. And then someday, the Bible says there's going to be a rapture and with a trumpet sound, we're going to be out of this place. And then before the throne room, we're going to come into that place, and there's going to be a diamond ruby throne, a great big rainbow with a green hue, reminding us of how that we continue to grow and we find life in God. And on the throne is one, one who's beautiful, and the, all the elders are going to be there. There's going to be all these cherubim. One, it looks like a lion, and another, an ox, and representing Jesus Christ. But these cherubim, these angelic creatures are there. They're giving praise to God. And then all the elders, what are they doing? The Bible says they are on their faces before God, and they're taking whatever crowns they've been given, whatever rewards, and they are laying them at the feet of Jesus. They're saying, it's not mine. <laughs> it's not mine to wear. It's yours because you want it. You and you alone. We have something to give the Lord. I wonder how it's going to be in heaven when we stand there before God. Will we have something to give Him? Will I have something to present to our Lord? Oh, if I could get something into each of our hearts this morning, and that is this. Folks, we are 10 seconds from heaven. We are 10 seconds from the coming of our Lord. At any moment, don't be angry at each other. Don't be bitter, my friend. Don't be hateful and don't be sinful. We are 10 seconds from standing before God. He is coming. He's coming soon. And I ask you this question very seriously. He is coming and he's coming soon. Where will you be? Where will you be when he comes? There's no chance to get a second. There's no second chance. 
Once he comes in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and when that moment comes, your eternity is forever settled. You'll either be here on earth getting ready to get your mark of the beast so that you can exist in this hellhole for seven years. You'll be getting ready to give, get an explanation for what just happened all around the world, or you'll be in heaven in this glorious throne room scene. It all happens in a second, in a moment. The Bible reminds us that if we'll confess Him, He'll confess us. If we deny Him, He'll deny us perfect, loving justice. Thank God that He came so that we could have eternal life. Chapter 4, a wonderful reminder that God is in control. Crown Him, as we sang a few moments ago, crown Him with many crowns. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.